right. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 17. Welcome. Um, before we jump in and introduce our guests, I'd like to do a bit of housekeeping and um, give a shout out to our host network. That's the Animals at Home Network with uh, Dylan Perrin, the goat. <laughs> and um, also want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. Project Herpetoculture is brought to you by Custom Reptile Habitats makers of premium PVC reptile enclosures. We have an affiliate link for them in our show notes and description. And if you make a purchase through that link, we will receive a commission at no extra cost to you. We also have cold-blooded caffeine and they are purveyors of premium coffees from around the globe. And um, for every bag purchased through them, they donate a little bit to support conservation in those coffee growing regions, which also support some really amazing herpetofauna. On top of that, we have tortoisesupply.com and they produce some really high quality tortoise feed. And it also works great for your mastics from what I hear. And then as well, we have reptilerocks.com. They make some really beautiful um, faux rock uh, reptile hides and um, things of that nature. And then last but not least, we have Redline Shipping for all of your reptile shipping needs. We've got links for all those guys posted in our show notes and description. And yeah, we want to say thank you to our sponsors for supporting the show and helping us keep the lights on over here. We also have now launched our Patreon. So thank you so much to all who have already subscribed. We really appreciate it. And um, if you're interested in supporting the show, that's a great way to do it. Um, of course, also, it's really helpful just to like, subscribe, comment, all that algorithm fueling nonsense. Yeah. Um, it's supportive. So we really appreciate it. And yeah, with all that out of the way, I'm going to pass it over to Phil to introduce our guest. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Roy. So um, our guest today is Jordan Russell. Jordan, thanks for taking the time to have a conversation with us. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Good to see you. Of course, ditto. Yeah, right back at you, man. Hopefully... Uh, Hopefully, all three of us are going to meet in person someday soon enough. Yeah, well, actually, I met Roy at. Uh, oh yeah, you guys all met. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm the odd man out on that one, but uh, yeah, that'll happen. So, so just because I'm curious and I'm not, I honestly just don't even know, Jordan. What's your? How did how did you even get started in herpeticulture in the first place? Like, what was? Is it was? Is it, it's been like a lifelong interest thing? Was there like a specific event? And then was it tied to? Has your interest in reptiles also always been tied to your interest in, in, in birds as well, or were they separate or? Yeah, it's kind of a weird origin story. I didn't know you were going to ask that. I don't know that I can tell it in a way that's accurate and interesting and, okay. and, uh, and all that. Um, but I had kind of a weird childhood. Um, I am one of 10. Um, I was raised as a Jehovah's witness. Okay. Um, so had kind of like a, a pretty closed off from the world, weird childhood. Yeah. Um, and uh, pretty quickly uh, thought birds were cool. You know, birds and dogs were like the coolest things in the world to me. And uh, I started breeding birds um, maybe around six. Um, and... Uh, some people from the Kingdom Hall gave me a pair of Nande Conyers that were plucked bald and loud. I wow. um, had them for about a week, and my mom was like, yo, this is terrible. <laughs> and uh, 
I found in, I think it was in Bird Talk magazine, there was a show coming up in Costa Mesa, convinced her to bring me, walked around the show with my pair of bald mandate on yours and just was like, would you trade me anything for these? Would you trade me anything for these? And wound up leaving with a pair of Indian ringnecks. Um, I bred those that year uh, and just kind of went from there. And then I think it was the next summer um, I had a border collie and uh, we we're out in the front yard and she was barking at the ground and went over to look and then the leaf litter at the edge of our, our front yard, uh, there's a little baby tortoise. And I went door to door asking the neighbors, you know, do you have tortoises? Is this your tortoise? And wound up knocking on this elderly couple's door across the street. And they were like, oh, probably. Uh, we have a whole bunch of desert tortoises in the backyard. Oh. There's probably more in the backyard and more eggs. And uh, they let me go look around. I found a couple more babies. And then they were like, you can dig up the yard and see if you can find eggs. Um, so I came over it's like every day after school for a while. And found another clutch of eggs, dug them up. My mom took me to the library, uh, read books on reptiles as best I could, built some very crude uh, incubator at home, and I wanted to hatch all of those eggs. So that was kind of my first experience with reptiles. Uh, so it just kind of grew in unison uh, with the birds. We had a number of tortoises growing up, and then... I was a junior in high school and I moved out mm -hmm. uh, and wasn't able to keep birds anymore. So I had, you know, I was breeding blue and gold macaws and umbrella cockatoos and had a variety of conures. And, wow. Um, couldn't just move out at 16 and bring a collection of parrots, right? It just doesn't yeah. work. Um, yeah. So I, I sold and traded all of my birds for reptiles because it just seemed more uh, accommodating <laughs> to what was happening in my life. And uh, I don't think I'd ever owned a snake before. And then over maybe a period of a two-week period, I had like 80 snakes. Wow. Uh, Holy shit. Just, I just jumped right in. Um, wow. Holy smokes, man. You know, yeah. to, to, a little random, but um, my fiance. Go ahead, sir. No, it's okay. It's okay. I was just going to say that my fiance is one of, not to one up, but she's one of 11. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, from a different uh, religious movement in Illinois, but um, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, maybe we'll have to have a different conversation about uh, <laughs> offline sometime about some of that stuff. That's pretty <laughs> intriguing. But um, so you know, with, with the risk of just completely diving right in, because we were having a conversation before the re the recording and everything, sure. and that's and I don't really think we need to preamble too much. But so, in how has your work with aviculture? affected your work with it in herpeticulture like how are the two related do you feel like they're terribly you know like what are the some of the similarities and differences that jump out for you and that that you spend time pondering so i mean there's a lot of uh behavioral similarities right um but then there's also a lot of like really interesting valuable lessons to learn right um mm -hmm. so the uh, Wild Bird Conservation Act in 1992, I want to say I'm going for memory here, um, basically shut down the importation of CITES birds to the United States. So you could get a consortium permit and you know create a consortium and import birds that were CITES listed that way with the federal permit, but the commercial trade in CITES birds was stopped. Okay. And now that created a weird 
uh, ripple effect throughout agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was the initial knee jerk, we're going to lose everything. Mm-hmm. But instead, what kind of happened was uh, it shifted towards a captive bred supply for the pet trade. Mm-hmm. Um, it was overall a fairly healthy shift. Um, there were some weird lessons that took us a long time to learn. Um, you know, I think a lot of species that were hand-fed and imprinted and kept as pets, you know, solitarily for a large, a large, uh, large portion of their life, oftentimes don't make good breeding stock. Um, you know, we had to learn how to raise captive bred citizens specifically in a way that they would grow and become good breeding stock, right? Um, mm-hmm. That whittled some species away. Um, there's also the secondary aspect, which is that much like I think the herbiculture is dealing with now, um, you know, you start aggregating all of these different species, um, particularly, you know, um, wild caught stuff mixed in. You start having viral um, viruses pop up, viruses start spreading from collection to collection, wiping collections out, that sort of thing started happening. Um, you have to develop PCRs, you have to get the funding for the science. Apologize, I need to take a break really quick. One second. No problem, it's cool. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by that, the uh, little bit about um, uh, raising birds that, to become good breeders because the pet ones don't become right. interesting breeders. Yeah. Because uh, I've kind of felt similarly with regard to the Euros. Um, I was just telling Roy, uh, Jordan, mm-hmm. the... I'm intrigued by what you said. Uh, I know you were on a specific train and I don't want to derail that, oh, you're good. but you were talking about how certain birds, when they were raised as pets and hand fed and all this other stuff, they perhaps weren't very good breeders. And I, I don't know that this, t- this is a, not a universality. Of course, they want to be pets. sure. Yeah. And I don't think it's a one-to-one comparison, but I have long felt that uh, a good Euromastics is a spicy one. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I like the more, the more relaxed and friendly and, and, you know, puppy dog, like a, a, a Euromastix is the, the kind of less vigorous, less, less, uh, not always as you, as you say, but it's sure. just aren't always great breeders. Is, is it sort of a similar? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe this isn't the best example, but you kind of don't learn how to not be an asshole unless you get punched in the face once or twice. Uh, and yeah. I think that there's a um, maturing process for a lot of wild animals that's not entirely dissimilar to that. Um, and, you know, if you're raising up a bunch of particularly, let's say, Indonesian white cockatoos, right? Uh, umbrellas, luckins, or, or uh, any anything kind of in that group, um, you know, sticking 20 babies, whether they were hand-fed or not, in a large cage uh, directly after weaning and letting them mature together, there's a lot of behavioral cues, lines you learn not to cross that just don't happen. Uh, as a house pet mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it winds up teaching the bird a lot that you just can't do. Um, and I think that there's probably corollaries in herbiculture. culture, um, mm-hmm. particularly I mean, your mastics are solitary animals. Yeah. You know, you raise a, a solitary animal that's never had to defend itself from the smallest incursion of any kind. And yeah just gets food brought to it on a plate every day and its cages may be a little too small, but the two places it can sit are absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It probably doesn't have a lot of vigor. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, that's dead on. That's uh, 
it, it's a challenge, uh, especially the solitary part, because, you know, this is something that I am always toying with, with my Euromastics in the sense that even though I encourage everybody who works, who asks me anyway, to house their Euros solo for most of the year, um, I also don't think it needs to be like solitary confinement, right? Because sure. I want them to learn how to interact with one another and get the opportunity to kind of exercise that interaction and not go totally insane and, um, you know, try to be more vigorous and get more, exp- uh, like, in, you know, psychological in- engagement with, with other members of their same species, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it becomes well, probably an interesting corollary there with the bird world, which is that there probably should be two trains of thought, right? Yeah. If, if someone wants to buy a, a pet or an eight, there should be a general idea of how you raise a good pet or an eight. And um, that there's nothing wrong with that. If yeah. you want to have a tame, chill pet or an eight, as long as it's well cared for, yeah. have one um, and help them do that. Um, but if you want to raise the future breeding stock, maybe there should be a different system in place for doing that. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be an either or for what everybody does. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and so one of the things we were talking about before the recording was the way in which your experience with dogs, um, working with different dogs and kind of growing up and learning about different dog breeds and how they've been managed and mismanaged over the years has kind of played into how some, somewhat how you think about herpeticulture. Totally. I'm intrigued by that too, because I've thought, um, you know, it, so I think that, you know, what we're doing with reptiles is a, a kind of domestication to a certain extent. And I, th- I mean, obviously it, just bear with me here on sure, this. Sure. I, it's, not, it's not like a perfectly fleshed out concept, but um, I think some of what we're doing with reptiles to a certain extent is a kind of domestication. Now, obviously dogs, horses, chickens, all these other things have sure. a, a different utility and relationship with humans. And I think that mm-hmm. the, so those reasons for domestication are obviously quite different than reptiles because we're not domesticating them for food or to work for us or to take us anywhere or anything like that. But um, I'm curious, well, what, what's, what your thoughts are uh, on, on some of the stuff I just said. So I, I would suggest domestication is a very long process. Okay. And herpeticulture, particularly in the vein of success, is a fairly recent phenomenon. So I think it'd be a little preemptive to suggest that what we're doing is domestication. Um, Maybe I'm being a little semantical, but um, I view it more as we're laying the groundwork for which species go on to become domesticated. Um, Yeah. And and then there will probably be a a fairly large division from that, right? And um, what is or isn't, but uh, what is, you know, there will be species which are not domesticated, but are continued to be maintained and bred, right? Um, you know, I would imagine if you're to, to take a group, an obvious group, right? Something like Ackies or water monitors, uh, you know, huge representation in the trade, mm-hmm. uh, very likely uh, species or candidates to be domesticated at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, species like blue tail monitors, which I don't know if they've even ever actually been bred in captivity. Mm. Not, not so likely, right? Yeah. Um, mm. So there will be a division like that, I'm sure. 
Um, as far as, I don't know that there is a, a requisite utilitarian component to domestication. Um, I, I think it has always been the, the, the motivating factor for why a species was historically domesticated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that those, just because that was why it was done, I mean, we have a, a lot more surplus as a species now and we can domesticate things just because we want to right i mean yeah. there's no utilitarian aspect to house plan really yeah right um, and, you know uh, it's aesthetic it's it's an aesthetic mm-hmm. component sure, or whatever whatever motivating factor right we can yeah we can i guess play god a little bit with things if we're so inclined yeah yeah mm-hmm. well and and i guess my thinking on this is it, i agree with you that it Maybe obviously domestication was probably the, not the most specific apt term because that's a broad, long, long process, as you say. And I agree that what we're doing is kind of like the initial yeah, groundwork totally. for what that's going to become, right? And, and I've thought a lot about. Um, uh, you mentioned plants, and I didn't. I, th- I thought about like uh, corn and soy, but there's also like cats. Ooh. You know, cats don't. You know, everybody says it's like, oh, we 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 had them around for pest control. It's like. Mm, kind of, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah, they ate the mice that ate our stuff, but just like with dogs, I mean, there was a a diverse set of reasons with each culture, right? Yeah, right. right. And, and and so, you know, uh, I wonder about, you know, what purposes we might generate for for why certain reptiles may or may not be domesticated, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's something that, I, you know, because I wonder about. People always, you know, people talk about it as this is what we're doing. We're, we're domesticating stuff. And I, I, I've i heard the argument that cats domesticated themselves, you know, like we didn't really do it until we started breeding them intentionally and specifically making adjustments to the way a cat looks and a way a cat kind of functions and behaves. I would um, suggest there's an argument to be made that that, that is what domestication is, right? Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, having a... Uh, a population of animals subsisting off of us secondarily um, for a long, however long the period of time is, may arguably not be domestication, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's there's a nuance there that uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps people more informed about the history of cats, right, would know. Uh, But I think that um, you see it in in domestic cat breeds, right? You see it in domestic dog breeds. I mean, uh, there's a breed from Uruguay uh, called a Cimarron, right? And uh, basically, uh, what was it? I think it was Alano Espanol were brought over and uh, became feral. And uh, you had this huge population of these feral dogs in Uruguay. And they had no relationship with mankind, with humans, right? Yeah. Other than that they were hunted. Um, and they were a problem. And uh, when they'd hunt them, they'd clip off the ear and then present that for the bounty, right? Right. Um, and then some people, likely foreigners, came and saw them and went, those are cool. Yeah. And uh, generated interest. And now it's a breed that's, you know, kept as a pet and bred. And they cut the ear off, rounded, uh, as an homage of the breed's history, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's remarkably different uh, for, like, an origin story from say like a, a French bulldog, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I think there's, yeah. Yeah, it, 
it's fascinating stuff because, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, I, I love the people who frame domestication as an adaptation, right? It, it, like, I love the idea that, uh, certainly can be. Yeah. Really, you know, I, again, I, I'm not necessarily trying to say, have any particular opinion about the, um, the, the solidity of, of this position or, or the, the factual nature of this position at all. It's just like, it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to think about, uh, you know, uh, reptilian domestication as, uh, maybe a, uh, like a fail safe against, uh, uh, you know, wild elimination. Obviously that's totally. That's a topic I find interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, herpetoculture's role is, yeah. uh, in the, the concept of conservation. Yeah. I feel like that's a weirdly, yeah. <laughs> uh, framed and often poorly considered topic in herpetoculture. Well, Agreed. Uh, yeah. Uh, could you expand on that a little more? Because you also, so one of the, one of the notes that we had when we were talking about, um, uh, about, about stuff we wanted to discuss, one of the notes was conservation versus preservation. Sure. So can you, uh, uh talk a little bit about that? So let's step back a touch, sure. uh, cause I feel like it's, it's very easy for people to go. That's not true. I don't do that. Okay. Uh, so when we're talking about herpetoculture, we should probably frame what that means. Okay. Um, and I treat it sort of the way that U.S. ARC would treat it if they're going on Capitol Hill. Okay. It's everybody. Yeah. It's all of us. Yeah. It's the yeah. good, the bad, the ugly. It's all of us. Yeah, sure. Um, just because you're a guy that only breeds ball pythons and you keep your stuff super clean and nice and tidy and you're ethical about what you do and your, your collection's NIDO tested and, you know, they're the cream of the crop, doesn't mean that herpetoculture is into also other things. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, exactly. So uh, I also don't classify herpetoculture as a, uh, a national thing, right? It's herpetoculture is global. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, and, sure. So when you take into all those factors as kind of your, your ground for it, uh, I've kind of always taken issue um, with the idea that we're involved in conservation in any meaningful way. And there are, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't want to take away from the handful of people who are doing good work, who are affiliated with herpetoculture and then funding uh, actual conservation projects. You know, there, there's a really cool Charles Bogarty project. Uh, you know, there's a handful of others. Um, but as a whole, uh, what we do has nothing to do with conservation. Um, mm. If anything, it's uh, ecologically detrimental. Um, and if you lay out, and I mean, I might get ahead of myself a little bit here, but if you, if you lay out all of the logical reasons herpetoculture is good, um, and, and I'm a proponent of those, um, mm. most of them, if not all, are just mitigating the damage we do already. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Which that, that gets a little messy, uh, a little uncomfortable to, to, to unpack, but um, I would suggest that there is a distinction between what we do and what conservation is. And the simplest way to frame that is we preserve things, we don't conserve them. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that's because in order to conserve things, I think that's more of an ecological term. 
And this may not be the most fleshed out framing, um, but to me, that makes the most sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's intriguing. So uh, could, could you, you were saying, all right, you know, here, there are some, some, solid arguments that what we do helps with on some level with, with conservation. And then, you know, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, um, could you kind of give like the, could you like steel man, the, 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 the arguments, you know, that, that say opposes yours that says, here's, here's why this is really valuable from a conservation perspective. And then maybe you could say, here's why I don't agree with that argument. Or is that, is that maybe a little bit? Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. I don't, I think, um, speaking for other people so i'm hesitant to say this is this is what they say right Uh, make that clear um i do think that there is a recurring argument i've seen enough to feel comfortable kind of restating it to some degree um i think it was really commonly used uh when blanthanotis started coming uh europeans Mm -hmm. specifically were making memes um there was a lot of uh a lot of attention on that Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the, there is a lar- logical argument that they're making, which is that if the Indonesian government isn't going to do anything to stop the deforestation of Borneo, all we're doing is moving Lanthanotis out of the way of tractors that are coming in to plant palm oil. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how is, how is taking Lanthanotis out of the wild uh, where they're in, under imminent threat a bad thing? Um, mm-hmm. I don't view that as an honest argument. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of reasons for it. Um, one is if, you're, if your primary intention was conservation, uh, putting lizards in a suitcase and you know smuggling them back and selling them for 10 grand a pair, wow. I don't see how you're conserving anything, um, how you're making a yeah. positive impact. If anything, you're just making matters worse. Uh, you're just taking breeding stock mm-hmm. out of the wild that may have been one of the few populations that would have survived deforestation. Um, there was no effort done with the proceeds of profits to help in the region. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't view that as a, a sound justification to make matters worse in the wild, right? Yeah. Um, so you have things like that. Um, I think the concept of conservation through commercialization is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think crested geckos are a really good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. So we thought they were rare. We thought, we thought they were extinct and we thought they were rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, some came in uh, largely legally. Uh, and then they became one of the, uh, the poster species for commercial viability of a reptile in captivity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've seen over the past decade, um, probably mostly over the past five or six years, is that the captive success of Eurydactyloides acricolae, Eurydactyloides velardi, uh, Ricciolatus, Chihua, um, some of the offshore Lucianus, mm-hmm. uh, has just gone on to fuel more poaching in New Caledonia, mm-hmm. right? The U.S. Fish and Wildlife is trying to stamp out, uh, very authentically and legally origin captive ready dactyloides because so much illicit trade is happening in other species in the genus. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're seizing exports that they shouldn't seize because they don't know how to put out this fire that's happening. Um, you know, there's, 
Yeah. Tons of illicit trade out of New Caledonia that's come as a byproduct of the capture success of, of New Caledonian species, mm. uh, including Ciliatus, mm. uh, you know, in, including Auriculata, stuff that has no justification, right? Other yeah. than, well, right. it'd be cool to have locality ones. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. It's, yeah, right. even the success stories have negative consequences on ecology. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and again, I mean, to unpack the concept further, uh, the conservation through commercialization, I'm not trying to pick on Tom here. I know Tom came oh. up with it. I think it was a great slogan. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a fundamental truth to the idea. I like Tom, mm-hmm. um, but um, doesn't mean it's beyond picking apart a little bit. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly, I think, because it's in the public domain at this point. It's not just Tom's. Oh, yeah. He came yeah, up yeah, with yeah. it. It's a Herbert culture slogan now. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. But I think if you if you pick it apart a little bit more and pull on that thread, uh, is there an argument to be made that you know the success of chickens in captivity has an impact on wild jungle fowl, or you know the success of domestic cats has an impact on wild cats, African wild cats, or mm. gray wolves from dogs, or so on and so forth? Right? Obviously. Um, you know, maybe regionally a handful of people kill less jungle fowl. Yeah. They can, you know, bring chickens. Um, but now people want jungle fowl. It's cool that they were like an origin species for yeah, yeah, chickens sure. too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is that aspect, which is that what we do um, doesn't have a lot of pot or arguably any positive impact on nature unless we do that with intent, right? It's not good enough right. to just say, I'm doing this, thus it's good because I like it. Um, you know, we have to, if, if we want to have a positive impact on ecology as a community, then you have to do that mindfully and with intent. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So, I agree with that. So there's, there's some interesting stuff that, that, uh, that you just pointed out there. So, the first stuff you were mentioning with the Borneo earless monitors sort of smacked of like vigilante justice in a way. It's like, if nobody's going to do anything about it, I'm going to do something about it. Right. And then, you know, we no, talk- it was nobody knew where they were. And then one asshole from Germany flew over there <laughs> and was able to find them because he piggybacked with a biologist. Oh, sure. And basically from what I've been told, threatened to kill him. And uh, it took the animals that had been found and then made additional trips. I mean, it's the oh. same guy that went down and hit uh, Bill Hayes' Cyclura uh, site down in the Bahamas. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're bad people. These are monsters. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, hit, hitting the Galapagos. And right. Well, I, so I, Real bad players out there. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. no, no doubt. No doubt. I meant, I guess I meant the, the rationale, right? Like the rationale that people will use for okay, if, if nobody else, you know, Bordeaux is not going to protect their habitat, we're going to take them and put them in a box and we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, because then it'll at least preserve them or, or what have you. That sounds to me a little bit like vigilante justice in some regard. That's what I, that's kind of what I was sure. putting at there. Mm-hmm. And then there's this. Um, but then pull on that thread a bit more, right? Yeah. As, as oh, a, yeah guy no, no. Breeds, a guy who breeds your mastics, yeah. you've seen what the conversion rate is on. Yeah. Use Egyptians as an example, yeah. or ornates. I think ornates are a better success story, so the numbers skew a little bit more in their favor, right? Yep. Your yep. conversion rate of how many ornates have come in from the wild versus how many get produced in captivity, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. or how many just survive to maturity or what have you. Right. Do we have a sustainable 
viable population of ornates in captivity today? I'm working on it. <laughs> if, if imports stop tomorrow, is there one? And yeah, I mean, I think there's some flaw to like, uh, what do they have it here? It's like a in, in, uh, MVP. Uh, <laughs> so there's this conversion rate that ecologists use. And uh, yeah, so there's a M MPV. Uh, so it's not the best method, right? Uh, you need a lot of data and a lot of computing systems to come up with a, a, an accurate species-specific bloodline diversity requirement for a captive population, right? Sure. Uh, but as a general rule of thumb, 5,500 is what most people have gone with. So that's 50 distinct breeding bloodlines mm -hmm. for species to have a future. Now, uh, they say that species that are more sedentary and lower yield tend to require more diversity, which is kind of counterintuitive, than species that are higher, more explosive breeders, right? Yeah. So maybe Galapagos tortoises would be at one end and red-eyed tree frogs at the other, right? Yeah, sure. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe Galops are 50 and red-eyes are 12, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you put your amastics maybe firmly in the middle, I think it would be fair, uh, 25, uh, are there 25 established bloodlines of ornates, uh, viably breeding captivity at this point in time? Maybe. How do you, how do you define a distinct viable established bloodline? There you go. Right. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. it gets pretty, uh, in depth pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, here I can say safely that I have at least that many unrelated import adults that are 100% healthy, breeding readily, and seem totally fine. And I have their offspring now. So you have five breeding adults. So at that point, I mean, you can mix and match, right? Uh, but more or less, you're probably cutting that down to two thirds of that, right? Yep. Because once you pair them, now that's a bloodline. Once yeah. you pair these, now that's a bloodline. Yeah. Um, right. And the idea behind that is generally that you need a lot of people working with a species totally uh, at varying levels, right? Uh, for a species to have any path forward long-term. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to step back before we go way off the rails here, yeah, yeah. Um, that wasn't the result for Lanthanotus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right. Rob Nixon has done uh, well. He's made a few clutches. Um, I think Richard Cazares made a clutch. Um, I think someone in Canada made a clutch or two. Um, one of our guests, uh, one of our previous guests, Brian, Brian Minna has a, a, he on the show, he was telling us about, it. he's got eggs incubating right now. There you go. So there's, yeah. there's this handful, right. Yeah, uh, right. Of people that have done, uh, have, have had some level of success with them. Yeah, Does right. the species have a viable path currently in captivity? Precarious at best. Yep. Um, yeah. So this, this argument that, you know, we're, we're kind of rushing into a burning house to save them. Mm -hmm. uh, it also falls a little flat there. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, because there wasn't a concerted effort, right? There was a, uh, a concerted effort to uh, preserve the species in captivity. There was a concerted effort to profiteer from it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and I brought some in. I mean, I'm, I'm throwing myself under the bus here, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you grow and you develop and you, you reconsider and 
and uh, evaluate your positions on things. Um, but it's, you know, it's certainly one that, you know, uh, I think I was on the wrong side of. Uh, but, you know, Lanthan Notice also have a flip side of that story, which is that the Indonesian government went on to give them a quota. So as long as they're captive wow. bred, uh, they have a quota. So now they're coming out again okay. with documents. You know, and they had, despite what uh, the Guardian and uh, people on Facebook say, yeah. they did legally leave Malaysia. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And Malaysia owns part of Borneo. Um, I've seen the documents. The animals I brought in were from that origin. Uh, they were not all smuggled, despite what people on Facebook said. Yeah, it doesn't mean legal and ethical inherently align either. Right. Yeah. Well, and, right. Exactly. And I'm, sorry, Roy. I know I. No, I, it's okay. It's been going on and on, but I also think. I mean, I don't know. I kind of get the sense that. You know, so there's all these. There's all these broad overarching narratives that people will use to to justify what we do or how we do it or sure. you know, all these and some of them some of them are you know maybe a little more um, sound than others some of them are 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 you know maybe clearly straw man or you know arguments sure. but it seems like um, these are the arguments that we need to have. That ha- you know the these are the iterations that we have to go through in order to land on a you know maybe in fifty to a hundred years I mean I'm again I'm just spitballing here but in order to land on a well defined well thought out well systematized and institutionalized methodology right I mean it like I think that that's no ambitious. Um, okay. okay. I mean, I, I think that uh, there's an individualistic aspect that is sort of inherent uh, with people that are drawn towards any sort of agriculture mm-hmm. um, or farming mm-hmm. practices, which is what I would argue herbiculture is, right? It's yeah. urban farming. Um, yeah. And I think people who are a bit more individualistic, uh, a bit less aligned with social norms and, and that sort of thing, not only are, are the primary demographic for that, but then the subset of herpetoculturists from that group are even more that way. Mm. So expecting there to be some philosophical commonality within this group mm-hmm. I personally don't see that as a likelihood. Mm. Is that, but is that, uh, would that be, which is that like, and again, I'm not, uh, yeah, no. I'm not accusing push. you of anything at all, but it, I that, want you to push back. Is that cynicism or, or lack of imagination? Or is that like, because I don't disagree, because I don't disagree with you on a certain level, right? Like I, the, there's not, it, it, it is, individual it is an individualistic pursuit and it is in some ways a uh you know an aesthetic one and um uh and all of that but it, it doesn't um i kind of lost okay i kind of lost my train of thought here sorry but no, uh, I, I feel like uh one could conceivably make that argument about 
much of what we do as a culture, as a society, a huge, a huge amount of what we do is um, sort of individualistic and uh, you're talking about our species or America? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about as a species, so much of what we do is like a near term focus. It's immediate return focus because we're programmed to be immediate return animals. You know, that's what we are. We're not long-term. I mean, we, we do a good job of mitigating that and becoming more long-term thinkers with time, with practice, with influence, but I think that's just the dissipation of being of being overridden by hormones when we're young. We just get older and we Yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. We aren't just yeah. responding to just firing <laughs> synapses and yeah. You know, yeah. uh you know, I don't know. I don't know that I agree with the premise that we're wholly individualistic as a species. I think there's a lot of foundational arguments to be made that that wasn't our origin story and that globally it's regionally variable right sure yeah of course yeah you know yeah, so I'm, I'm hesitant to to suggest that that species why i do think that american culture tends to be more individualistic um, than some other cultures um sure but just because that's true i mean there's there's a wide gradient right globally for our species and then you know within the states as well all I'm suggesting is that herpetoculture historically has been kind of an outlier thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's become more mainstream and with that has brought more mainstream people. Mm-hmm. Um, but historically it's been uh, you know, kind of the, the odd man out thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah. And with that yeah, has brought the kind of person who's an odd man out. Yeah. Um, to your point, you know, as it has become more mainstream and brought more mainstream people, maybe that will change. Yeah, I don't suspect in any real meaningful way, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, as sure. far as like some sort of homogenous philosophy, I just, I mean, there isn't homogenous philosophy in like any major political party, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. So lumping together a group of people that their only thing they have in common is they think lizards are cool, yeah. uh, snakes are cool, or tortoises are cool. That might be all we have in common with one another. Sure, sure. And then we don't even necessarily agree on what that means. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, and and I guess I wonder, yeah, you're right. It's a, sort of an ambitious uh, concept, but like, you know, I don't know what, I, you know, I get, you know, you could even make the argument to a certain extent, like what more do we need other than that commonality, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of up to us Ooh. to articulate the framework through which we want to move forward as a, as a, as a, as a, as a group. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like anything else, right? You take a large swath of people and you find the people you vibe with, right? Um, You know, you don't need, everybody doesn't need to agree on everything. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Disagreement and discourse is the foundation of thought. I Um, demand you agree with me, Jordan. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more thoughtless than someone who views things that way. Yeah, sure. Jordan seems really receptive to that kind of demand. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If if anything's going to persuade him at at all, it's my. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if your ambitions are, you know, to see, I I don't recall who said this, uh, but Many years ago, back when the carpet python community was really having a lot of like internal battles, 
about the future of carbon pythons. Uh, people who are very against hybrids, people who are against morphs, people who are supportive of that stuff, and so on and so forth. It was happening all the time. Those guys were just arguing about everything. And it almost became what that community was for a brief period of time. Someone in the midst of that said something to the effect of, you know, I don't like hybrids. I don't necessarily like the morphs. But if I like diamond pythons, that's my thing. And I don't want to see diamond pythons lost to what's occurring. Then I'll breed pure diamond pythons and I'll work on preserving that species in herpetoculture. Yeah. This is more or less his point though. If I give a shit enough, then it's my job to do that. Yeah. And if I don't do that, then clearly I don't give that much of a shit about it. I'm yeah. just on the internet arguing with people because it's fun for me, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think that there's a bigger lesson there than I maybe he thought, and it stuck with me, which is that if you care about this stuff, then then do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that also applies to like the kind of where a herpetoculture can also actually influence conservation, which is like if you care about the conservation, contribute to conservation. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Yeah. consider a percentage of your earnings to go to conservation. You know, I think that that is, that's always occurred to me as kind of like the obvious way that herbal culture can actually have an influence on conservation. Real conservation too, right? Exactly. Real conservation. Because there are, there are organizations out there supporting habitat. And I I do think there's a historical tendency, I'm not going to name names, of people using their money affiliated with herpetoculture to fund projects to gain access. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's not conservation. That's one of the most cynical nihilistic things you can do. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that there, there is a ton that could be done on that front. Um, and I would argue, I mean, you don't have to be wholly altruistic about it. Uh, it buys goodwill. Uh, you know, if, if, yeah. if U.S. Arc, and I want to be clear here, I throw a lot of U.S. Arc's feet. Uh, friends with Phil and a lot of the guys on the board, I don't throw it out their feet for criticism. Mm-hmm. I, I support U.S. Arc, and, uh, you know, I like those guys. Uh, Phil's probably the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's like... A, just photos of like Barack Obama when he got elected and when he left office, I feel that way about poor Phil, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, where he's oh, yeah. just working his ass off for us. Yeah. Um, so if there's an advocate for Phil, the way Phil's an advocate for herpetoculture, it's me. Like I got nothing but respect for that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that we as a community have morphed us arc into some sort of like NRA. Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, right. Exactly. Uh, we want them to fix all of our goddamn problems right now. And we don't want to have any consideration about it. Just fix it. Um, You've got my five bucks a month. Fix it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I think uh, that U.S. Arc has the capacity, right? To live, just for historical context, there has never been a lobbyist group representing any sort of exotics community that's been successful. 
Um, and I was a member of the Organization of Professional Aviculturists 20 years ago, uh, long before Andrew and uh, everybody started US Art. And I'm friends with some of the people that are still on the board, and I, I like them a lot, but they haven't done a, a 50th or a 100th of what Phil's done in the past few years since he took over US Art. Um, no one's been as successful. I mean, PJAC's done a ton, but PJAC is a different bird, right? PJAC right. predominantly represents Petco and PetSmart, you know, SeaWorld and that, that, that vein of things. Uh, so that's put US Art in a really interesting place, right? They're, they've been able to unify herpetoculture uh, and, and be successful in representing them. I would argue that for that to have like long-term impact in a meaningful way, yeah, there probably should be a wing of US Art that's involved in conservation projects, yeah. that's involved in supporting higher education for uh, for herpetoculture, right? Like if if herpetology is whittled down to what is it, like two schools that offer PhDs in herpetology these days in the States? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if that, um, mm-hmm. where's the future on that front for us? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, I discussed this at, at Herpeton, uh, having a unified herp club system, right? That yeah. acts as like this mm-hmm. umbrella base for USR and USR's the sphere uh, would create a lot of power for the community in that front too. Um, so personally, I think having people that are more proactive um, and involved in expanding, maybe under USR to do a lot of these things is not only going to have a positive impact on those specific areas, uh, but it's going to have a positive impact in shaping the narrative of what the future of permaculture is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, so your, your, the talk you gave at Herpeton, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm, I'm sure Roy did as well. Um, mm-hmm. What was the process of that like for you? Like, like, um, was it nerve wracking? What, what were some of the considerations that you were trying to <laughs> before and after? Like, is there anything about you, the talk that you gave that you would change? I mean, I'm just really curious about that. Um, I mean, I haven't gone and relived it. So right. on that front, uh, I don't know what I would change or not. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I hate public speaking. Okay. Uh, you know, I was... I was so nervous. I left my USB up there and my coffee and I was yeah. supposed to take questions after and I just walked away. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, sure. I hate that stuff. Uh, you know, Peter Neckis was interrupting almost every speaker in the middle of them speaking. So the whole time I'm talking, I'm just waiting for him to interrupt me and say some, <laughs> um, you know, it, you know, it was terrible. Um, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Yeah. As far as considerations are concerned, it's just like this, right? Yeah. You and I are having a conversation and who knows how somebody home is going to hear it. Sure. Uh, they may misunderstand or just simply disagree. And yeah, they'll be like, ah, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> you know? I, mean, if, if, I, don't, I don't like putting myself out there like that. They're going to be saying that about me if anybody. <laughs> nah, you're like, don't worry about it. Very likable, Phil. Well, you, yeah. that's because well, I appreciate that, but I, that's I feel like you two are biased. But uh, uh, how how dare you? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like this stuff is um, even though 
the what, what, what we've talked about thus far has been extremely interesting um, and and maybe if, if maybe a little bit scattered in, in some way th- this kind of stuff is is like the really what I want I love getting into this because um, right. for me personally a lot of my learning and a lot of my my problem solving kind of happens out loud it happens out in the world you know I think for a lot of people it happens for them it happens up here in their head right? <laughs> And then they they think about it and then they spit it out. For me, it kind of happens in real time. So I really, really enjoy this kind of conversation and like getting getting the chance to bounce ideas off of off of each other and like learn from people who've thought about this stuff way, way more than I have. I mean, you know, so um what do you think? You know, because because I know let's just go full stream of consciousness here. Yeah, okay, yeah, God. Well, okay, we're gonna do that. So I know Roy and I have talked a lot about we have pretty big ambitions with project or pediculture as as a concept, you know. And obviously, we're, he and I are both we're, we're still quite young. The show is still super young. Um, how it may or may not proceed is sort of yet to be determined. We're going to be doing these for as long as we get value out of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we have a lot of a lot of ambitions about what we may. Uh, what we're considering, what we're thinking about in terms of long-term, long-term goals, uh, long-term future stuff. I mean, how, how do you think we get away from some of the more uh, toxic or um, the, the, the aspects of herpeticulture that maybe aren't serving us very well? You know, I mean, I, these, it's, it's complicated, right? I mean, nothing is, simple. Um, I think there's nothing more uh, repellent to me than somebody who's like, oh, the answer is very simple. Um, I mean, you're either selling me something or you just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But as far as positive paths forward, I mean, obviously mentorship is huge. Um, I grew up in agriculture predominantly and mentorship in that community is something I was very fortunate to find. Um, you know, Dale Thompson and Gene Hall were always willing to just sit and talk. And these are old guys that had lived through all of it. And they had very interesting approaches, right? I mean, they grew up in agriculture when it was largely a wild caught trade, right? And uh, after the Wild Bird Conservation Act, I mean, we're talking five years after, after the shutdown, you know, Dale, you know, was working on creating consortiums and, bringing in, I mean, the first Hoffman's Conyers and getting them established and having a totally and wholly un, uncommercial mindset of that. Uh, his goal in bringing them in wasn't, I'm going to be the first one to do it and I'm going to make a bunch of money from it. Instead, what he did was he was the first one to do it. He spent a bunch of money doing it and then largely just gave away breeding stock to people he felt uh, were capable and competent in continuing the project. Um, you know, he just literally for free here, mm-hmm. I have faith in and gave them, uh, offspring. Uh, it was a very different model. Um, and I know agriculture wasn't all the Thompson's, right. Um, mm-hmm. but I was fortunate to have someone like him, uh, kind of molding how I saw things from a very young age. Um, and I think that made, positive impact. I mean, I grew up in agriculture and I also grew up in 
herpetoculture, but I grew up in herpetoculture online, right? So yeah. imagine how shitty and stupid you were at 16. I did that in a public arena, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of kids doing that now, right? They're growing up in uh, like kind of the worst time to be a young herpetoculturist. Yeah. Um, I don't know, uh, having lived it to a lesser extent, I can't imagine being the guy that like just got his first Savannah monitor at a local pet store and they're posting photos on Instagram and their setup's wrong. And then they go through that really quick learning curve that most of us go through where it's like, oh, this is so exciting and fun. And they're just digesting information. And then 18 months later, they've moved on and they've got a fairly decent setup and they're trying a pair of hackies and everyone goes, I remember this asshole. He's the one that got thrashed on Facebook, you know, 18 months ago for, you know, Savannah monitor on rabbit pellets. Right. Sure. Uh, That that's going to create, I think it's going to do a disservice uh, to the future of corporate culture in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that um, that's kind of happening in unison with, an immense amount of information that guys like us didn't have, right? Uh, you, you couldn't go on iNaturalist or go look up the weather of some valley in West Africa or see the rainfall in this specific rocky hillside you like um, mm-hmm. the way you can now, right? So we're, we're simultaneously developing youth that has um, a lot of pressure to perform um, and criticism and not a lot of mentorship at the same time as it'll probably be some of the most informed herpetoculturists that have ever existed, right? Totally. Yeah. It's a weird dynamic that's occurring. Um, so yeah. what will, what will be the best way to shape that? I don't have a lot of answers because I didn't grow up in that world. That's sure. the world that's happening right now. Uh, right. you do know that being thoughtful and kind and helpful it helped me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of example setting. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel I, <laughs> I have some slight different view. I mean, I agree with a lot of that, right. That um, mm-hmm. there's so much about the barriers that are erected as a result of the way, you know, a Facebook group handles someone who's not doing it the way we think they should be doing it or somebody new and all of that stuff is a huge problem. Um, with that said, Roy and I both have talked about this, uh, and it came up a little bit in a couple of our last conversations, which is, I mean, the reality is Roy and I wouldn't be friends, Jordan, you and I wouldn't be friends. Uh, the, the way I understand what I'm doing as a keeper wouldn't be the way it is today were it not for social media. I mean, I've got friends from all over and I've been able to learn and it's like, it's kind of, you're right. It's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. In a totally, way. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't know about uh, like Bert Langerworth really, if it wasn't for the ability to like Google him a little and find out a little bit. I mean, obviously there's the, there's well, he's the, a very good, interesting example, right? I mean, Bert yeah. is an absolute legend. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, uh, he's the shoulders we stand upon in some ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, absolutely. He eviscerated on Facebook today. Uh, you know, he, Thank you. he was one of the quirkiest, weirdest, most interesting people. And, you know, 
he built his cages out of trash. <laughs> you know, he had big, you know, deco- uh, you know, uh, compost piles for worms that he harvested his food from, and yeah. it was chaotic and messy and functional. Yeah, for him in his way, um, I would lose my mind working in that collection. But it worked for him, right? So he's a good example a yeah. of someone who probably would be treated badly today, but uh, did a lot of good. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a more interesting thing about Bert, though, which I think goes back to what we were talking about earlier about preservation. Mm-hmm. So I think that we should probably dive into this a little bit because I do find this interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you're looking at, again, let's go back to your dates, right? Sure. So if you take a species and you want to see it have a permanent place in herpiculture. Mm-hmm. You can't just willy-nilly go, I like this, so it's going to have a permanent place in herpiculture. Mm-hmm. Species do not have viability in that way. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a ton, of, I would argue most species don't. Um, and yeah. I think that there are some requisite components for that to occur. Um, so as far as how that functions, I tend to think that commercial viability is absolutely necessary. Mm. And the reason I say that is that when you're, when you're talking about blood biodiversity, right? <clears throat> so let's say we need three times the population of ornates represented within our country uh, for ornates to have a pathway, right? Mm-hmm. Long-term permanent pathway. You're not going to have three fills. It's unlikely. Maybe unlikely, right? Um, So what you really need is, you know, a fill and then four guys who are like, I really like ornates. I've got five pairs. And then you need 20 more guys who are like, I have a pair of ornates and, you know, I breed them. And then that's kind of a, uh, a carousel, right? So, Guys hop on, guys hop off, more or less, and you will lead 20 guys or breeding a pair, right? Sure. Um, you need that foundation to be supported by consumer demand. Yeah, if yeah. you don't have consumer demand, all of your work basically is to what end, right? And Bert is an example of that in a very interesting way because Bert was the guy that brought Australian water drink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He bred them so well and so successfully that no one else did. Mm-hmm. They were 35 bucks wholesale, 40 bucks wholesale. Yeah. Um, pet stores did not do well with them. They were brown, they were spazzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not a good retail animal as a, as a hashling. And when Bert passed, very quickly they went from almost every reptile specialty store having them in stock at least once a year to us needing to import them from Europe to get breeding stock and people starting to build collections again. And they're still somewhat valuable and there's still a few hundred bucks each for babies now. Um, That all happened because Bert died. Yeah. Yeah. Now imagine any other species being held up that way where one guy is the guy that does it. They do it so well that they're commercial, but they overlook building kind of a tiered 
uh, structure for consumer demand and for other breeders being involved, right? And yeah. you'll see how in aviculture and also in herpetoculture, one guy dies or gets a virus in his collection or just decides to call it quits, and that species just vanishes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So exactly. Give that. I mean, you have anytime there's major conflict. Uh, you know, if a whole collection or one guy's collection is the source for that species, and there's a war. Ah, well, that species is gone now, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. building that commercial viability is, in my mind, one of the most important parts of establishing a species. Sure. Building consumer demand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this is um <clears throat> like right in my my wheelhouse at the moment. Totally. This this is like <laughs> the the idea around commercial viability, what it means for something to be truly established in herpetoculture, how many people have to be participating in that group of animals to make that a long-term viable prospect, how many animals you need in order to have the, the genetic diversity to make it last past a few generations. Um, all of that and much, much more has been stuff that's been floating around in my head here for the, like the last three to five in a way that every year a new consideration pops up, you know, like we, we did. Um, every time we, we did, talk on the phone, this is predominantly what we talk about. Yeah. 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 Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would, we, we had one of one of our first episodes, I think it was like our second one was with, or no third, maybe it was with Eric Haycraft. And he was talking second. about, it was the second one. Okay. Thanks, man. Mm -hmm. We were talking, he was talking about how um, he was trying to figure out why so many captive bred sailfin dragons uh, didn't have, or uh, basilisks. basilisks, excuse me, my bad. Yeah. Uh, their sails weren't developing properly. Right. And they're not green, right? They're like turquoise. Something, yeah, something, yeah, yeah, lots of differences, right? And almost and every, almost every uh, green lizard you'll notice, you know, whether it's a uh, uh, green tree monitor or a basilisk, you know, we just don't offer the carotenoids that they do in the wild. Exactly. So right. you, know, you see someone with captive bred baby green tree monitors online, and they're green. Yeah, yeah, they're not captive bred. Yeah, for a ring around their neck from when they got noosed out of a tree. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and exactly. so those kinds of consider considerations because. I've been breeding ornates for just north of 10 years mm -hmm. and you know, not as of yet, but I'm, I know that something is going to present itself as, Oh, Hey, you didn't consider this mm -hmm. not because I didn't intentionally avoid, avoided anything, but because you can't know until you get there, you know? Sure. And then and, there's stuff like genetic drift, right? Ornate that you're like, that is the nicest ornate I've ever seen. Yeah. And then you wind up with like Genghis Khan siring your whole collection of ornates, right? Yes, right, yeah, right. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I've been trying to uh, develop um, protocols here at the shop and become as informed as I possibly can about other animals that have undergone the transition to permanence in captivity just to try to inform and try to safeguard what I'm doing here. And it's like, this doesn't even begin to consider what happens if the if next year, nobody wants ornates, you know, like what happens if nobody wants. I think you're in an interesting and rather fortunate position yeah. in that you are recognizing a lot of these things while there's still kind of a permeable layer of genetic diversity coming in on your mastics. Right. Um, exactly. We've seen kind of whack-a-mole with your mastics where oh, yeah. species X is 
four dollars for you know x amount of years and then they just yeah. stop coming in right yeah. and that's yeah. just happened over and over and over um and it's put guys like you in a really good spot where you can go oh, i see this happening right this is yeah. uh there there is clearly a direction this is all going but the public likes your masters right mm-hmm. it's not a genus that you have to convince the public to like yeah yeah i'm not yeah mm-hmm. right and that, that, that gives them a path forward. All it's going to take is a bunch of dedicated people. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and there's another way that this has become relevant, at least for, for me anyway, which is the, the Xenogama, you know, because sure. I, I think that Xenogama Tayloride are a, an absolute knockout for herpeticulture. Like that it's, it should, in, from, from my perspective, they're an obvious, excellent choice for their size, for the, for the, for the, the, the fact that they are so easy to provide a, a very, very good baseline standard of care for, for a, a number mm-hmm. of animals, partially because of their size, but partially because of the, uh, they're just not that complicated and their, mm-hmm. their dietary requirements are relatively minimal. I'm mean, just in terms of content, right? Totally. You know, I mean, I think that, that you're, much you're building a species place in captivity if your local mom pop pet store or Petco can maintain offspring yeah. enough to sell them to the public, that species likely has a, a permanent place in herpiculture. Yeah, right. and, but they don't. That's terrible. The, <laughs> the difference with the Xenogama is that uh, they don't have the baseline. Like an ornate is a is a fucking desert ground dwelling panther chameleon they're a m- miraculous visual spectacle right mm-hmm. so a xenogama is not that they they are at the, the, they're cool and they're interesting and their tails are incredible and the the cobalt blue that males get when they want to breed is an absolute knockout sure. but and this is where i drift into controversial territory this is where i think this makes them excellent candidates for being introduced into, you know, bringing morphs into the game. Now, mm-hmm. obviously there's big problems there, right? Like that it has to happen, right? I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. You got to get the winning lottery ticket before this, con- this conversation has any real meaning, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. Totally. And, and I'm not suggesting that this is the only, this is like the right answer. I'm not saying that this is like what I'm going, like what I really desperately want to do with Xenogama, but my, I'm just iterating on the idea that you know you mentioned ornates as an obvious standout in my mind the xenogama are an obvious standout but if i'm you know i'm gonna have to i feel like i'm going it's going to be a much more of an uphill battle in terms of building back on that a touch which is that bearded dragons receive wide success yeah and popularity and commercial success long before they were pretty okay that's true and they're big cool factor was they had a spiky throat. Yeah. I, mean, I, I bought bearded dragons uh, early, like in the nineties when they had value wow. as a normal bearded dragon. Um, I think I traded a baby cockatoo I made for a handful oh. of babies. And I remember being a kid and just being like, this is the coolest shit ever. This big spiky throat. Um, yeah. yeah. Xenogama have that with their tail. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the blue. Yeah. And, yeah. And, True. I don't know that morphs, are necessary for for that to be cool to a to a kid, right? Which if you're going for commercial viability, your target audience is 
you know, at, at that level of commercial viability is first-time buyers, right? right? Right. And if they do indeed make a reasonably decent first-time pet reptile, they do. Uh, all you need is that one thing for that, that kid or teenager or young adult to go, that's pretty cool. I like that. True. With time, you get lighter versions or, you know, more blue or yeah. whatever it is. Okay, great. Now there's some diversity. You can appeal to... Uh, the guy who's like, I really like those. I remember having one, but I want a nice one. Yeah. Uh, you don't necessarily need an albino. Right? Yeah, no, no, sure. And, and I don't, I don't, again, I don't, I'm not suggesting that that's like the, the necessary next step or anything. It's, it's just, it's just like, I, I, I've been really enjoying getting into this section of thought, you know, for, for mm-hmm. everything that I do, because, um, you know, one of the things that I'm finding is that every year that goes by, I'm just finding more and more interesting problems and challenges and, and, and subjects to tackle. And it's like this self-sustaining, you know, whereas in other industries that I've been involved in specifically, like in when I was in, involved in illustration and concept art, great fun, very difficult to do. It takes a lot of skill, but, but profoundly, profoundly boring as, as a, as you're a wrist you're a production, mm-hmm. you're just a printer, you know, and you, you're just, you're not really, uh, except at the very, very highest levels, you're not allowed to infuse your creativity or your, your, your preferences or anything into what you're doing. Whereas mm-hmm. pediculture is like a mixture of not just influencing my own creativity and preferences into what I do, but you're also counterbalancing that against the well-being of the animals that you're working with. Um, considering their future, considering the impact of what you're doing broadly. I mean, there's just so many different angles to come at the same problem. And yeah, you can drive yourself crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't definitely don't want to go crazy, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have like a, a like a well-defined thing that I'm heading towards here. And I really, I really want to give, I feel like I've just been talking over Roy this whole time. Yeah, man. I'm so I, and part of it's because I'm a super talkative person. So I just want to like, I'm going to kick the ball over to you, Roy. It's, you know, it's good, man. It's good. We're just, we just have different processing speeds and yeah. yours is like, you're, you're just, you're just going at a different rate than I am. And, I just um, spit shit out. But, <laughs> yeah. but, um, no, I've been, I mean, I think about this subject a lot, just like the whole viability thing, you know, with the stuff that I'm working with here. And obviously like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a hobbyist, you know, I'm not working at a broad scale, but I do feel, um, passionate about some of the species I'm working with, you know, in particular the Polychris and feel like oh, yeah. there is potential commercial viability, not like at a, not like at the mom and pops kind of scale, like you're talking about, although, I mean, in my experience, the the captive bred and born babies are are really bulletproof um, so far. I haven't lost a single one. Hell yeah! Um, Just to back for a second, I mean, I think yeah, it's not necessary for everything to become a budgie, right? Yeah, um, right. There are varying degrees of permanent success, um, and that success could just be a diehard group of people who keep a genus or species going, right? Um, totally. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm hoping for with the Blue Chris is like just a few, <laughs> a good few dedicated people to get on board, you know, and just keep them going because they're they're really amazing lizards. Um, I get it, man. I mean, that's more or less my attitude with my hornbills. Um, oh yeah. I mean, there's no commercial viability in African hornbills. 
you know, I hesitate to even trust anyone to keep one as a pet. Um, you know, yeah. but I would love to play Atlas for how many ever years I have left and, you know, hold up as many species as I have the space and finances to work with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love them. Uh, you know, but again, I mean, I, I like animals more than people, right? I mean, animals were my escape yeah. from people. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's like three or four people and reptiles I talk to. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to keep to myself and do my thing. And, uh, air over here, really. what's that? So this is a rarefied air over here. That's awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, so the appeal of commercial viability in a reptile project to me is huge, right? Yeah. If I can just go clean poop and feed animals and enjoy my reptile collection and wholesale everything and not talk to anybody, oh, that's totally the goal. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the animals. I don't like any yeah the other parts of this so much. Uh, but then, you know, I have a handful of other projects that are more like what you're talking about. Right, there, mm-hmm. there are things that they give me personal satisfaction in a way that maybe bringing king snakes or bull snakes doesn't. <laughs> Those are mm-hmm. though, by the way. I enjoy them. No, I totally enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with them. But uh, hatching out a clutch of bull snakes is <clears throat> is not exactly like a monumental occasion where it's like, sure, oh right. shit, I can't believe I you know I helped get that done. Uh, yeah. You know, it's still exciting. I mean, I can see a clutch of red-eared sliders hatching and be like, oh cool. Uh, you know, I'm still like a little bit of a kid about this. Uh, oh yeah, you know stuff like the defense orange. I know your hurdles with that species. Uh, you know, I'm years in and just got to clutch this year. And, you know, oh, nice. the eggs and uh, you know, I, I, there's no place for that species in herpetoculture. They're a fucking yeah. nightmare. I mean, you and I have fairly <laughs> experienced keepers. Uh, there's no way I'd sell one to someone as a pet and expect that to be like a good situation. Uh, you know, uh, mm. but at the same token, I'd, I'd like to breed them and have some success and try my best to spread them around to, to competent people. Right. Well, yeah, I, totally. I, I, I made the decision recently uh, and I've aired this out a little bit on the show before, but I, the next, at least next year, possibly the year after, I'm just not going to bother breeding the Egyptians. Um, oh yeah. No, it's like I, I love. I, I say again because of all the imports coming in. Oh, right? oh no, no, no. I mean, they, they, the demand is still there. People still hit me up for them all the time. It's just that, and I'm happy with. I'm really, really fortunate that a huge number of the babies that I've sold have gone to people who still have them and Good. caring for them in great big enclosures with a great deal of dedication. I just. I'm not convinced that that number is going to stay very big for very long. You know, they're huge animals. They need a lot of space. It doesn't mean there's not a group of people out there who are dedicated to doing that. All you need to do is convince all the guys buying water monitors and blackboards to steal back their ambitions a hair. And uh, yeah. Like, I know it's really fun to feed this animal an entire turkey, but have you have you thought about just putting in a bale of hay and watching him eat that? <laughs> you know, like it's maybe not quite as interesting. But <laughs> oh, by the way, how are you coping with this uh, this lettuce shortage going on? Jesus, uh, uh, me. I can't imagine on your end. You know what? It's a a mixed bag. So on the one hand, it's winter, so a lot of the animals here See. aren't aren't eating that much. So my needs have gone down. Um, a lot of euros can eat hay 
and eat some dry stuff and then I can throw in. So I'm able to like spread that butter a lot more thinly over the toast as it were. Yeah. Um, I've been, uh, I've been planting parts of the yard with like clover and winter rye preparing for this as the prices have gone up, but yeah. 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 And then I, I'm really lucky that in Colorado, there's a lot of wild plants that grow in the warm season that I can feed to the euros. I have a, a mother who her backyard is just full of shit that when I lived there, she would plant uh, flowers just that all the euros can eat. So, oh, they would, nice. so the whole yard is overgrown with stuff that I can go pick if I need to. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. The price, yeah. it's incredible to watch a pr- the price for three heads of lettuce literally triple or, you know, go from like $6 to $15 in a week or two. Yeah. Fucking crazy. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. my overhead on on produce is lower than yours, but you know, a few hundred bucks a month. I don't and know, man. You got some tortoises. <laughs> yeah, they eat a lot, but you know, it's a few hundred bucks a month to feed the tortoises and the birds yeah. and the iguanas. And it did like a four hundred percent price increase here over the past six weeks. Um, yeah, which is just like okay, that's impactful. That's, yeah. that's just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. It's, it's really, it's a consideration. It's something that comes up a lot, but the, uh, and not to, not to jump around too much, but the, the Egyptians, you know, this is one of the things, you know, they, I have my adults in eight and a half foot long by five foot pens and that's a great size, but it's not big enough. You know, yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah, you you know that that's like the razor's edge of like yeah. a little smaller, and, and, well, and they're doing nothing but getting bigger. They are yeah. still growing. Yeah. They, they grow for a long time. They're gonna be huge animals. Now, I am very lucky that I have plenty of room here, True. and I have I have construction quite literally underway right now to grow their their space. Um, but it's I just it's hard. You know, they're a big animal with a lot of considerations and they're not as big as a green iguana or a, a black throat or, a, um, can I make a recommendation to you? No. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, don't stop pairing them. You're feeding them and paying for the electricity anyways, Pair yeah. them and donate all the offspring to zoos and build relationships within the ACA. Mm. okay okay that's that's a consideration i have so not building have relationships not. within the aza is a very <clears throat> thing to do for a number of reasons well i have been so again i've been in uh, so I've, I've i've dealt with uh four maybe five aza institutions and i would like to increase that number of course sure. i had not considered that was an option I didn't know I could just donate. I didn't know that was in the cards. Uh, reach out to the curators at different reptile zoos that you know. Okay. Or even keepers, you know. Yeah. And go, hey, do you or any of the zoos you know have interest in doing an Egyptian exhibit? I want to donate some babies this year. They'll, they'll get back to you. A lot no. of them would be like stoked to do it. Okay. Very well, cool. I'm definitely going to keep, yeah, I'm definitely going to. San Francisco Zoo, reach out to Dom Dorsa. I know he'll say yes. Okay. Okay. You're at, I'm going to, I'm going to write I'll, that I'll text it to you. Well, still, I'm yeah. Okay. Well, I, all right. Well, fine. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, please. Cause yeah. it, like, this could be a good path for the sulfurious here, potentially. Oh, totally. Ah, those are yeah. beautiful, man. I love those snakes. Those are some badass. Yeah. Badass. They're super cool. <laughs> Amazing snakes. Yeah. That whole genus is rad. Oh, Spilotes. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite. My favorite snakes, yeah, probably. Cool. 
I mean, there's amazing snakes out there. Actually, I have some eggs that that um are at 89 days right now. So what is their incubation? It could be any day now. So oh, it depends cool. on temperature, oh. of course. But like I've heard anywhere from like 84 to 100 days. Okay. You hatched there. some a few years ago, right? I hatched some when I was 16. It's the first oh, snakes okay. I ever hatched. Oh, cool. Um, so it's been a really long time. And then I've had, I actually have um, one of the snakes that I hatched. I got back. Your male, right? Is, yeah, the male. Yeah. And he's pretty much geriatric now. So. Okay. Last year I got a clutch and they went full term, but babies didn't hatch. They were deformed, not fully developed. And I think that the potential there was parthenogenesis oh. um, because I never witnessed any sort of courtship. And I'm kind of curious if that's going to happen again this year. It's a different female. Shocking but, how commonly that's proved to happen. Yeah. I know. I'm really, really curious if they do end up hatching. I mean, either way, if they don't hatch, I'm going to try and find somebody to send them to, to figure out like, hey, is, is this parthenogenesis? Mm-hmm. Um, but if they do hatch, it'd be interesting to explore that too. Talking about uh, the correlations between aviculture and herpetoculture, that yeah, right yeah. there mm-hmm. is interesting because we're finally starting to catch up on that front. We're, yeah. we're years behind forever, and now we're getting PCRs for different diseases, DNA sexing. Uh, you know, I think Morph Market recently launched. Uh, you know, for this this joint venture, I think they helped finance uh, for right. testing uh, genetics on ball pythons, which has tons of really cool implications for expanding that and uh, defining maybe more ambiguous subspecies of things. Like I know with a lot of the imported testudo, uh, it seems like there's there's been some problems on that front. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that there is existing access to that, but having it be affordable and easily accessible, uh, massively impactful. Yeah. 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 Totally. yeah. It's yeah. really super cool. Um, so what is, I, this was also something in the notes and I, I'm totally unfamiliar with this concept. What is the Rosemary Lowe philosophy of specialization? Oh, uh, okay. So when I was a little kid, I was part of the Orange County Bird Breeders Club, right? Okay. <laughs> so it was like once a month, my mom would drive me down and drop me off with a bunch of old people and sit around and talk about birds, right? Yeah. Uh, we'd yeah. have like a, a little auction or something at the end and raise money. And then once a year, we'd have speakers, you know, every month. But like once a year, we'd do an event, raise a bunch of money and bring in someone kind of, you know, more elevated within the community. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, it must have been maybe eight or nine. And uh, we brought over Rosemary Lowe to speak. And she was the curator at one point for Laurel Laurel Park, uh, which is this massive zoo uh, in Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And uh, they they focus on citizens. Uh, They do other birds, but, uh, you know, it's predominantly citizens. So, uh, you know, they they do a lot of, like, reintroduction programs. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's a really, really cool facility. So she came over and spoke, and one of the, the more pressing things she said, you gotta remember, I mean, this is 93 maybe, mm-hmm. uh, was really trying to beat into our heads that if you want to have a positive impact in aviculture, uh, both for the species you're working with, for the, the success you're going to have, specialization is the key, whether that's a species or a genus. Uh, you start, uh, she made a multitude of points, but you start having, you know, 
uh, a ton of diversity in genera, the likelihood of you uh, having problems with disease go up. Uh, you start having a ton of diversity in genera, uh, you're going to likely have some uniformity in nutrition and diet, uh, great for some and not so great for others, uh, squandering that breeding stock potentially. Uh, you specialize, you start figuring out the nuances of successful care and you know, the type of nest you're using or how you're mounting your perches or all of the little things that if you have, you know, macaws and cockatoos and conures and Amazons, uh, you're just not going to notice. Mm, um, and it kind of stuck with me. Um, I, I'm a little ADD, um, you know, I, I grew up in this. I'm also like, uh, very picky. Um, so, I'll tend to buy a species and go, all right, these look interesting. And then very quickly, like, oh, I, I can't keep dart frogs. I absolutely hate raising Drosophila, right? Wow. Uh, you know, and, and I just learned the hard way in a lot of stuff, right? Um, you know, I, I bred bull pythons for a number of years. And while I found it fun and, uh, you know, very profitable, um, I hate having live rats around. Oh, um, I absolutely despise feeding live rats and a lot of ball pythons want live rats. But you just start crossing species off um, and going, well, they're cool, but not for me. Um, and as I've gotten a little older, that thought keeps coming back to me. And I, I wish I had heeded it when I was younger and just picked a lane and, and worked with the genus, much in the way that you're doing it with the Euromastics. Hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, and focused on one thing. Instead, what I've done is I've gotten older is I've gone, okay, well, I'll work with this group of snakes and then these other couple just for me for fun, you know, like red tail green rats, just because I, I like them. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then this group of birds and this group of tortoises, but I don't have a ton of anything. I have like just enough stuff between the plants, the birds and the tortoises and the snakes to where I'm busy all day. And I'm constantly working, but I'm not just sitting there, you know, with a thousand tubs to clean, you know? Yeah. Uh, my dick gets broken up into a variety of different chores. It's, it seems to resemble a little bit about, of like, I believe, uh, I don't remember if it was at, at Herpeton or if it, it was at a different conference, but Philippe, it was a talk where he was referring to, uh, like reptilian monocultures or like herpeticultural monocultures, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, resembling monocrop agriculture and, and some of the problems. I think he was making a different point. I think he was actually uh, suggesting herpeticulture's uh, tendency towards monocultures as like trend-based activity, if I recall correctly. I think you're probably right. And I think it was more of a detrimental point, which I, he has a very good point about. Uh, yeah. you, know, you don't need to look much further than what happened with ball pythons mm-hmm. and how, uh, again, I have no problem with the ball python community. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, th- I think that in a lot of ways, it's, it's been a really positive thing. Yeah. Um, I know they get a lot of shit from people who think they're better than them, but yeah, yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, because ball pythons were so easy in a lot of ways and uh, people could be successful with them, a lot of people just quit working with other stuff. And uh, there weren't enough people to pick up their reins and certain species just became less common or, or altogether disappeared 
as people focused or hyper focused on uh, on ball python. Now, the, the same argument can be made with geckos, right? Most people start with geckos and they go, oh, you know, I saw some Velsuma grandis and I thought they were cool or whatever, whatever it was. And then they kind of expand and have fun. They build a diverse collection. I did this. And then they go, oh, it doesn't make sense to have all this stuff, you know? Yeah. You sit down and I'm just going to work with Rackadactylids or yeah. Genera, they're broken down into now. <laughs> um, or I'm going to, you know, only do Nephrites or whatever. Yeah. Um, and those monocultures do in a lot of ways with their success exclude other species. Yeah. But I would argue that there is logic behind the exclusion, right? The people are sure. mindlessly yeah. choosing, I'm going to work with ball pythons instead of Papuans because money. Mm-hmm. You need positivity in your life and success for motivation, period. And uh, Papuans are difficult. And, you know, they're almost exclusively wild caught. And they come in, you know, unhealthy a lot of the time. Building a collection of them and then going on to have success is not an easy task. Um, Mm -hmm. And is there a permanent place for them? I don't know. Um, So I think it's it's complicated um, as far as that whole concept of monoculturing is concerned. Um, I, I, I think it's a net positive in a lot of ways because as it reduces down, let's say there's there's let's say there's three commercially viable pythons and three commercially viable boas and you know uh, I'm just uh, not that there is but yeah, yeah, that, that is a baseline uh, three commercially viable your mastics and so on and so forth at a certain point um, there isn't really this massive economic incentive uh, to import the other stuff commercially for the pet trade because the pet trade's demand is already being supplied, right? Yeah, right. Um, and again, with the wild caught stuff, it's messy, right? Yeah. Um, like Petco and PetSmart have to follow the four inch rule, right? For tortoises and turtles. Uh, it's not currently economically viable to capture breed a tortoise, particularly something like Testudo that makes a half decent pet for the general public, raise it to four inches and then sell it at an affordable price. Yeah. So what fills that gap? Wild caught Russians. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and Uzbekistan, they're, they're captive bred, you know, which that's a whole other deeper topic with the, the farming practices with herbiculture. But yeah. um, Uzbek is the primary exporter for Russian tortoises. Over 100,000 Russian tortoises get exported annually. And that's been going on for decades. I mean, I think the lowest figures I saw going back around 20 years was like 40,000 annually. Uh, wow. That's at, remarkable. Yeah. I mean, you look at stuff like water monitors. I think the export quota is like 400,000 annually. Uh, or ticks, bloods, tegus. I mean, numbers are in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, a lot of that's for the skin trade. And that's where things get messy, right? I mean, when you have a developing country without a ton of jobs and without without really a pathway for people, the primary economic drivers tend to be natural resources. Mm -hmm. So if we go, okay, this is unethical, we're going to stop importing, you know, captive hash, wild-caught baby water monitors, uh, odds are that those trappers, the quotas will stay the same. But those trappers will just shift their attention towards finding larger animals for the skin trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the quotas aren't inherently filled, right? They, it takes 
it takes activity to fill the quota, right? Um, right. So if they redirect or redirect their attention towards filling the skin trade quota, is that a more negative impact than than what's occurring? Probably. Um, so it's it's all super messy stuff, and it's not as simple as you know whether or not uh, a retail store that you and I may or may not like selling wild caught baby water monitors to the public for eighty bucks. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's grotesque, but um, it's not as simple as their individual activity. Right. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. As Philippe was saying in our um, in our last conversation, it's like we can't separate ourselves from what's going on in the world. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> as much as we would like to. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's all, I mean, these are, these are very complex issues to unpack. Yeah. You know, and uh, I don't know. I think that the more success like true commercial success and again there's a multitude of aspects to herpiculture and they aren't as simple as commercial activity but if we care about long-term implications of herpiculture uh fixing the problems that occur on our side which is on the consumer side and i would put all three of us in that consumer side um the 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 best activities we can direct our attention towards is, is fixing the things that um, they're ecologically problematic from trade. And right. the easiest ones to do are to fill consumer demand with captive bred stock and mitigate the demand for wild caught stock. Um, yeah. and, and, and frankly, I mean, the big, the big reptile distributors on the East and West coast that, that do a lot of wild caught trade, they don't give a shit if it's wild caught or captive bred. They want an affordable product for the consumer to buy at a reasonable price point. That's all right. they care about. So right. if chapter bread polychris are, you know, 80 bucks and wild caught are four, they're going to buy the wild caught 10 out of 10 exactly. times. Um, yep. And educating the consumer, I mean, as nice as that would be to do, um, they've already made their, their transaction most of the time before they ever care enough to get into the weeds on things and learn about it. It isn't until their yep. second or third reptile that they go, oh, this is really interesting stuff. I should join a Facebook group or buy a book or go to a reptile show. Um, so, like, the damage is done before they're even really accessible. Um, There's always another sucker. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of these businesses are based on the model I said earlier uh, yeah. when we were talking before, uh, which is you don't need to sell the same customer twice. Yeah. Yep. Well, and the, there's no, um, something that I, I've always been a little bit irritated about is there's no accountability or any kind of, uh, like guidelines in place for, a you know, people just post all oh, captive bred, Euromastix or nada. It's like, yeah, oh, there's a handful of people who chronically yeah. different species, right? Yeah. It's really obvious if you've been in the, the hobby for long enough, you're like, yeah. oh yeah, he's doing that thing he does. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I mean, everybody, right? It's like if all it all it takes is one person in that line to say, "Oh, yeah, no, it's captive bred." Okay, then, then they label it as such, and there's no there's no tracing, there's no accountability, there's no micro. You know, I mean, I guess in some there's now there's going to be microchipping in some larger lizards and stuff, but you know, there you can't you can't. It's it's challenging. You know, one of the most common things I get uh, through my social media pages is people saying, Hey, I bought this lizard. He's about two years old, captive bred, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, 
you know, who knows how old wild caught J Rai or, or every fucking time. And well, yeah, I used you as a, as a reference yeah. to a friend like a month ago. Yeah. A friend messaged me and he's like, hey, I'm thinking about buying this pair of Capra Ornates. And I was like, those are wild caught. Yeah, and yeah. He was like, how do you know? And I was like, I can tell. And yeah. Yeah. I was like, hold on a second. So yeah. I messaged you and I was like, yo, these are wild caught, right? You were like 100%. Yeah, so I yeah. screenshotted yeah. it yeah. to my friend and I was like, I told you. Yeah. Um, but you just, you just know. I mean, you're yeah. aware of like what's occurring in the trade. You're yeah. aware of who the seller is, where they tend to source their animals. Yep. Um, there are people who just habitually lie about the origins of their animals. And then there's people who lie to cover the legality of their animals, right? Of like, course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, a lot of the Mexican trade went off the rails for a few years there. And, you know, no one's, no one with half a brain is going to post up wild caught a bronia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it occasionally and it was shockingly stupid but <laughs> I call uh you you would routinely see very clearly wild caught a brony as captain bread right oh yeah uh, totally. they're just doing it because they have to otherwise they're admitting to illicit trade right yeah yeah so okay so and i'm sorry i keep i keep saying i'm gonna like it's okay go go for it all right all right all right so i'll uh, get in there i'll get in there what if if Okay, so I was speaking with a friend a couple of days ago, and one of the pieces of criticism that he had for me was that there is so much inter-industry kind of, for lack of a better term, bashing, right, that can go on within, within herpeticulture. You know, you've got, you've got this side over here that says, well, if you're not – if you're not – if you're rat keeping it all, you're a, a fucking asshole. And then over here that says, well, you know, like the more, you know, it's totally fine to just keep a snake in a rack and you know, all that naturalistic shit is, is just for, for it's elitist and it, and it, it's, uh, you know, not everybody. It's, for, it's for the keeper, not for the snake. Yeah. It's for the keeper, not for the snake. And it's, it's like, it's got nothing to do with the actual well being. you know, and then you've got this group of folks over, uh, you know, on this other corner that says, well, you know, uh, you know, we have to do better. And then this other side that says, well, don't tread on me. And there's all this like kind of disunity. Sure. Right? And, and we discussed and I, earlier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Individualistic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, to, to respond to that, I, I would suggest, yeah, it's, that's, that's a complex set of issues, right? Yeah. Uh, probably the most fundamental aspect of it is that largely because of social media, although I would argue we've always kind of had this okay. uh, aspect to ourselves as people. Yeah. Um, we've reached this weird point where people are purveyors of knowledge, not acquirers of knowledge. Right. Uh, and because <laughs> of that, uh, everyone has the right answer. And whether they just thought about it for the first time or whether they've studied it extensively, uh, you know, they, they tend to think that what they think is the right answer. Um, we're all guilty of it to a lesser or greater extent, but it seems to be a widespread cultural phenomenon happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, some species probably aren't best suited for a naturalistic enclosure, right? Um, <clears throat> for some, it's absolutely necessary. And for some, uh, maybe there's a plus and a minus. I would argue it goes, what you keep and how you keep, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is 
you got to figure out what kind of keeper you are. Yeah. You know, what kind of, what kind of person you are when it comes to keeping. Mm. Uh, I absolutely hate messiness and disorder. And there is nothing more depressing to me than walking into a chaotic reptile room and looking around at someone set up and going like, you don't even have a fucking system for your water bowls. Uh, You don't have like a a standardized cleaning method. Like uh, I don't know how that works for somebody, Uh, but that's because it doesn't work for me. And uh, you know, the idea of keeping, uh, you know, glass climbing geckos and naturalistic glass enclosures, particularly something bleachy on us, where they're just shitting all over the faces of everything constantly. Like, uh, that seems disgusting and abhorrent to me, <laughs> but it works for some people, right? So, just because I don't like it, it doesn't give it any value. I just don't like it. Um, it's like comedy; it's subjective to a certain extent. Are your animals healthy? Um, maybe uh, the fact that your room's a little chaotic is fine because your animals are healthy. I just don't like it. That doesn't mean I need to go, you know, berate someone and say you should have an organized reptile room. Yeah. Um, and I think people tend to lean more into that. Table management is atrocious. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I actually got shit for that a number of years ago. I had just <laughs> I had just set up a bunch of uh, a whole gecko wall in uh, in the gecko room I used to have, and uh, my cords were a little disorganized in the back, and, and someone left a snotty comment about uh, how I'd organized my cords. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. Who gives a shit? How could you, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. I mean. He was right. They were disorganized and I fixed it as soon as he said it. But I was so focused on all the other aspects. So when I was done, I was like, yeah, done. Photo. Yeah. And then he said it and I was like, yeah, that does look like shit. I should fix that. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, I'll have room to grow. We don't, we don't all have the right answer. I certainly don't. And uh, I don't know. I think anyone out there go, like finger wagging beyond like, you know, uh, things that aren't arbitrary. Yeah. Uh, like legitimate harm and stuff. Sure. Yeah. yeah totally. Um, yeah. Who gives a shit what they think? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the second they move on from being like, you should only keep things in naturalistic vibrariums, they're probably on some political thread, finger wagging at someone else or who knows what. Like, that's not the kind of person anybody should pay any fucking attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often feel this way about just sharing anything like like writing articles you know like i all my articles have like a a robust disclaimer first thing that's just like this is just the way i'm doing it sure yeah (laughs) it's not the only way to do it i'm not saying it is yeah i mean okay great great example right with your spilotes would you rather see a guy with four pairs of sulfurous struggling with success and beautiful enclosures like yours which is more or less your experience, right? Because you're, you're still yeah. working them out. Yeah, or, totally. Or would you rather walk into a, a room with 30 adult pairs in Freedom Breeder Boa racks and you walk in and you're like, oh, not how I'd fucking keep those. Yeah, yeah. And they're knocking out 18 clutches a season. And totally. the demand that otherwise goes to wild cop. I think I'd exactly. rather see the second one. Same. You know? yeah, yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day, same. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, any, anything beyond, uh, I don't know, having some respect for other people's approach, 
it just doesn't make sense yeah 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 i think that 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 that's a good just like fundamental baseline to try and try and hold in perspective is just that like we're we're a bunch of geeks um, keeping keeping <laughs> lizards and snakes in boxes and um and doing it for our enjoyment ultimately at the end of the day most of the time yeah and um it's it's kind of a silly thing to get like really up on your high horse about it totally I mean, with that said there's plenty of rooms i've walked into where i'm like oh i've never buying an animal from you um sure but that's between me and my decisions i don't need to go tell people you know uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah right i mean oh yeah yeah we'll be like ah, yeah. fuck this guy this is a monster yeah. Um, yeah. Not for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not to say that like we're not beyond critique or that we shouldn't be offering critique, right? It's just to, it's just to like try and hold that in perspective and like it's so it's so quick. People are just so quick to go from zero to one hundred in this day and age. Maybe like again, that's just a broader cultural phenomenon as well. But I think that um, yeah, it's almost like well, it's like a, a whole generation of people raised by Puritans and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people act like this is some like recent phenomenon with people like turning everything into some grand uh, moral arguments. Like, do you not remember the eighties and nineties? Uh. <laughs> it's like every musician or actor was boycotted for this or that. And yeah, it's just, it's the same shit. Um, yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I, I feel like, this conversation has been extremely uh, interesting, really illuminating for me because I think one of the cool things about almost every single show we've done is that every person that comes on has a unique, you know, speaking of unique perspectives and varying perspectives, everybody's had unique perspectives that have given me like a lot of food for thought and a lot of, um, and there's a lot of stuff where it's like, oh shit, I, I need to read a little bit more about this or, or uh, think a little bit more about this. Um, I want to say, Roy, do you, do you want to, do you have some, any, any, any other um, questions that you have that you want yeah. to get out before we go to? Uh, There's a couple more. I mean, I want to be conscious of your time, Jordan. Do you have, okay. do you have room for a couple more? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, one, I mean, you, you spoke earlier to um, mentorship as being an important thing in the hobby. And you also acknowledge some of your mentors in aviculture, but I'm curious if you've, if you've also had mentors in herpetoculture that stand out to you or anyone who's really influenced your. Yeah. I would say like, like Jack Dyer, Todd Dyer's father um, was hugely impactful. Um, I mean, I spent every free afternoon I could in his reptile room, bugging the shit out of him, asking every question I could. And he was, like the grumpiest, like cool dude you could imagine. And just irritatingly responded to every stupid question I asked in like a way that like he cared. Right. Mm-hmm. But he was also like, that wasn't, that wasn't his normal role or personality. Right. Like he was trying. Uh, I really liked that. Uh, he was a, a super cool dude. I mean, he's still around. He's still a super cool dude. Uh, but at the time, very, very meaningful, impactful. Um, not many others, to be quite frank. Um, mm. A lot of bad role models. Um, mm. A lot of people who, when I was young and impressionable, impressed upon me some really important values and perspectives that took a while to outgrow. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I mean, that's part of the reason I've advocated for it. 
is mm-hmm. in urban culture, it seems to be a scarcity. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's something that we need a lot more of. Yeah. How about you? Um, yeah, mentors. Um, yeah. I mean, very few like face-to-face mentors. You know, I think that like the first one I would have to acknowledge is my dad because he, um, he, you know, was kind of the seed of my interest in reptiles. He had oh, cool. a, whole, a whole reptile room. Oh, I didn't know um, that. What was his focus? When I was a little kid. He didn't really have like a focus. He was just kind of all over the place. He also had arachnids. But at one point when I was a little kid, we had like 60 animals in the house, you know, um, 30 tarantulas. And he had, he had a yellow anaconda. He had a Eastern indigo. He had a green tree monitor at one point. So he, and my dad's, um, he's a goldsmith. He's a super meticulous, um, craft oriented person. And I think that I, um, learned a lot from him just, just through osmosis. It wasn't really super hands-on, but, um, and that era, just for context, I mean, that era, advanced herpetoculture was just keeping a cool collection. I mean, there, yeah. there were breeders, certainly largely colubrid breeders and a handful of boa breeders, some pythons, um, but advanced herpetoculture was basically anything beyond just taking something from pet somebody in a glass aquarium, right? So totally. uh, the context of the time matters. I feel like having a collection like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple other people that I want to shout out just from my kind of my teenage years when I started to get like more seriously into herpetoculture. And I was working with, um, you know, a bunch of big colubrids, Trimarchon and Spilotes. And um, when I got that clutch of sulfurious, I had a, an imported female that I brought in and turned out to be gravid. And um, there was like a kind of a community of people that was coalesced around the kingsnake.com indigo forum at that time. Back in the like Fred Albury days. Yeah, back, yeah, it's like the, 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 the big colubrid nerds hung out in there. And um, there were a few guys, um, one guy, Bill Reed, who I, I have no idea what he's doing now, but his handle on that site was Site Hunter. And he kept coach whips and spilotes and sulfurous. And he had, he was doing some interesting things, keeping them like with these indoor outdoor pass through so they could get outside. And, um, but he, um, was really generous with me with his time, um, in email correspondence, like, okay, this is what you got to do. Like, this is, this is the right amount of um, water you want in your coconut fiber substrate. If you're going to incubate them on that, you know, you want to squeeze it to this extent, you know? And, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just give him a shout out. Back in that era to derail it a bit. No, no, it's good. Focused on Texas indigos in like the, I want to say the Chicago area, Virgil Willis, mm-hmm. I want to say, you recall him? Yeah. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. yeah and Brad Shalaba. Uh, he did a lot of dry mark on back then. Yeah, there was a bunch of like diehard guys back then that were really cool. Yeah, totally. And so a lot of those guys were really, um, really generous and forthcoming with this little scrappy 16 year old in the trailer park in Northern California. So um, yeah. definitely owe something to those guys. Yeah, I mean, I, um, much like you, I spent a lot of my like later teenage years on Kingsnake. Yeah. Just being a fucking menace. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, just like a teenager, right? I would love that just making John Hollister want to murder me. And, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, those are, good. those are good times. Those are good times. But so I guess if, uh, if Roy, if you're cool with this, I want to. Yeah, yeah, of course. Close. I got, I have one final kind of question for you here, Jordan. And um, 
normally I leave this question, we tend to leave this question pretty, pretty open-ended. And I'd like to maybe just put a slight slant on it just because of the nature of the conversation that we've had so far. So normally the question is why herpeticulture? And that's just intended to be sort of like a broad or specific kind of, you know, unique to you, you know, tell me why that you think this is important, but I'd like to maybe ask if, see if you can slant it towards, um, you know, in a, in, because I'm an optimistic asshole, uh, slanted towards like the, the positive end of things. Can you, can you, can you, can you give me like, I like a, how that's a <laughs> necessary additive. To, yeah. Yeah. Can, well, can I mean, you just I, this, but try not to be a negative asshole. No, no, no. It's not, <laughs> no, I mean, it's not because I don't, it's not because I think you're, you're especially I, negative. It's I, I because I think you, you have a great, you think about this stuff in a very interesting way. And I think mm-hmm. I'd be very curious to know, your kind of best case argument for the existence of what we do. Like what's the, well, I mean, to start it off negatively as you anticipated. Um, So on one hand, right. You have the AZA uh, and different iterations of it globally. uh, But largely you have institutions that are working uh, to, on one hand, educate the public about maybe why we should have dolphin-free tuna um, on one extreme to yeah. why maybe uh, preserving land is, is necessary and why these animals are interesting, cool, and worth saving. Right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other part of what they do is, you know, stuff like SSPs, right, where they actually work to expand uh, diverse breeding populations of a given species ideally with reintroduction programs and then have a, you know, uh, kind of like a preservation collection captivity for that given species. Right. That's rad. Um, they can't do everything. So herpeticulture at its best does something similar for the species that the AZA and other institutions can't do. Um, there are, there's too much diversity on this planet for institutions to carry all of the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so at our best, we do that. Um, and we should aspire towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a multitude of things we do that institutions can't do. I mean, there's a, a crowdsourcing is a thing for a reason, right? Uh, as soon as there's a bureaucracy involved, uh, someone maybe has an interesting idea, but they can't implement it, right? And I can try all kinds of things and, you know, in the comfort of my own home and see what works, see if that's an improvement or not uh, when it comes to methods. And uh, herpiculture has done a ton on that front about reinventing methods and improving methods for captive care and also propagation. Um, Huge there. Uh, I think that things like what I had tried to start a decade ago, but didn't wind up working out is something we're now finally starting to see happen, which is mail-in diagnostics, whether that's PCRs or cultures or whether that's, you know, DNA testing. Uh, Seeing that occur is also really interesting because that's going to expand knowledge in a way that institutions, they they don't have the the data pool to pull from that we have. you know, there, there's a lot of room for us to have uh, healthy uh, actions within the community. And we, we do uh, a number of positive and interesting things within the community. 
Um, I just think we could be better. I know I can. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think room for improvement is always a good thing. I like that. That's a great, again, just speaking to the things that I, I feel like every, every single damn show, it takes something different away from all of this. I on the other hand learned nothing. <laughs> no, I mean it's. I mean, little man. Yeah, that was that was yeah, that was harsh. That was just gonna harsh. lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm just screwing around. I mean, I wish I could. I I would laugh harder, but if I laugh, I'm gonna cough up a storm. You gotta quit smoking. This godforsaken cough, I just will not go away. Um, well, I think that's you. Just he's just gonna pretend like he just didn't even hear what you said there, Jordan. I know, right? You see that? You notice that he just floated right over. Yeah. What did I miss? He's like, let's not talk about that. Oh God! <laughs> God damn it! What, I'm, I, I'm, he told I, you to I'm quit sorry. smoking. This guy. Oh, that's no way, dude. <laughs> <laughs> damn it! <laughs> oh, there he goes. Now he has to mute. Look what we've done to him. You got me, dude. I yeah. just got me. And this. Fucking mouse just came back and tried to. He thought there was going to be more. I I, I don't have, I don't have. <laughs> in that thing's bloodline, man. I know. I well, so I got one of them about two weeks ago, and I thought I didn't think I didn't know if there were going to be any more. Because um, and then earlier today, I was kind of cleaning up and fucking around, and I saw a few little turds in a few places while I was sweeping, and I was like, motherfuckers. And it's you start it's, keeping your uh, your food and and rodent-proof bins, man. I do. I have, I do. I have it all the foods isolated, but what happens is every once in a while I will, um, like drop, uh, like a, like a, you know, like the Missouri tortoise, tortoise food every once in a while, I'll drop a piece or two. You just leave a little, little food out for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, cause it, while it's I'm a little treat, heroes, you know, and it just, yeah. gets, it just gets away from me sure. as a benevolent see, guy see it in a corner over here, you know, or, or whatever. And I have to go figure it out, but you know, you'd think the mice would, you know, in my facility, it's a, I mean, it's not super fancy. I mean, there's whole, there's gaps in the walls and places. I mean, there's just places where they're going to get in. And so I expect them to be semi-regular occurrence here. And I do a pretty good job of keeping it mitigated. And I don't, to the to a certain extent, I kind of don't care that they're here. You know, it's it's when they uh, start getting into the cages or or um, start eating some of the food. If it, if you know, or if I accidentally leave a box of Timothy hay out and they chew that apart and get inside, I'm like, son of a bitch. You know, not terrier in there, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> Something. There you go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna cough. Sorry. <laughs> Let's just watch this. Yeah, let's just watch Phil cough here. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're done to him. It's brutal. He's picking on him. So, uh, going. are you planning to expand your species at all? Or what, you, what are your uh, aspirations? Me or Me? Roy? Roy. Hey. Okay, what you're doing? Hey. Um, not really. <laughs> not really, no. I am... Um, so right now I just I, I just moved. My my partner and I oh, bought yeah, our first place that. and we bought yeah, we bought like a pretty um a rough little cabin on nice. some land Congrats, and I'm gonna be building some thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, we feel really blessed. But um um I'm gonna be building some little like ten by twelve studios for my herbs, basically. I'll have like a temperature. Like and, species and, specific and room kind of idea. 
Basically, yeah. Yeah. Kind of more regional specific rooms, but um, I'm just going to keep working in a small kind of scale. And I think I've pretty much got the species I'm going to be working with right now. The most recent acquisition was a a pair of um, Polychris Peruvianus that I got um, that were captive bred and born in the UK. And um, that was like a dream species for me. So I'm excited to be working with those. And that's kind of it for now. I mean, I'm sure that'll change. You're doing the thing that I feel like uh, more people should do. Um, mm. when, you know, collection management is a developed skill, right? Uh, oh, yeah. We don't have it inherently. You learn with time. Uh, but so many people are like, you're a and chameleons and frogs and, you know, this temperate species and this tropical species all in a room. And it just yeah. seems to be the most recurrent recipe for failure or really mitigated success uh, in a lot of collections I see. Uh, I totally agree. If there's some advice from an old head that's done a lot of things wrong, yeah, don't don't try to mix a whole bunch of different ecosystems into one room. It doesn't work well. Yeah, totally. Fucked it up majorly. Yeah, we've all done it. Don't learn. You know, we're doing things wrong. Yeah. I had my, you know, my bearded dragon and my California king snake and my a yellowtail creeball in the same room, you know, when I was a teenager. And now I look at that and I'm like, God, like, I just couldn't do that these days. There's sure, yeah. no way. <laughs> I wouldn't stuff. want to. But well, so what is the what's what do you think what what does the future hold for you, Jordan? What's what do you think is what are your yeah. some of your goals and what's building my Kluber collection? Um when I got back into reptiles, it was like I want one room for snakes. Um so I, I just went out and I bought all the freedom breeders and I filled the room with the racks and I was like, I'll, I'll slowly fill the racks. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do the, uh, the thing that I've done when I was younger. And a lot of people do where it's like, these are cool. Then figure out where it's going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I designed the room and then that was my, you know, my restrictions I put on myself. So I've just been expanding my Leonis collection. Um, that seems like a species that, there's so much interesting diversity and yeah, there's some problems, right? Like a lot of like mutt stuff out there to avoid, but it's easy enough if, you know, you pay attention and have a decent understanding to avoid. Yeah. Um, but there's so much interesting diversity that it just made sense to build a collection of like all of the most extreme examples. So I've been doing that. Um, and a handful of different bowls and pines. Um, and I'd, I'd like to kind of carry on that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have some rat snakes, the, the red tail green rats. I bought some bred babies that were produced last year by Patrick Sterling. Nice. And then I've got a pair of Ridley eye and then, you know, that's it. The Ridley eye and the red tail green rats are basically my only non temperate, uh, snakes. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really plan to expand outside of that. Um, and then the tortoises, which I would like to continue expanding, uh, yeah. you know, a, a focus, predominantly on like temperate tortoises. Um, And then I really would just, you know, the birds, I plan to just keep acquiring as many African hornbill species as I can um, that are not loud, which is like five species, right? Like, um, yeah. So that's like an ongoing thing with the hornbills. Um, You know, it's a lot of space and a lot of money and all that thing's Mm -hmm. slow, but as long as they don't go sides, you know, there's yeah. some room there. And that's kind of it. 
Uh, yeah, I don't I don't plan to build some reptile empire. You know, I do a ton of plants. I'd like to expand that. Uh, you know, this year it took a light because we moved last year. Um, but historically, I was growing you know two or three thousand trees a year. Oh, um, and then this year um, and last year, it grew maybe around twelve thousand cactus. Wow. Um, per year. Um, so it's kind of carrying the cactus made more sense with the move, you know, a little bit less room. Um, yeah. So just kind of keep going that direction until I'm just like, Oh my God, <laughs> what have I done? Help. <laughs> yeah. 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 For yeah. Sure. Okay. So you have to hit the eject button. Yeah. Where can people, um, find your your plants like where can they find you on so everything's just kind of Instagram, all that stuff i know you had, a, you had an etsy yeah it's all centralized on my website so uh california breeders union.com like care sheets on tortoise babies and you awesome. know a link to my instagram link to my etsy store all that kind of stuff cool i'm kind of like with instagram i'll just you know while i'm working pull out my phone and be like oh, this is what's in front of me right now kind of thing yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll make sure to uh, add all of your various endeavors uh, linked in in like show notes and everything when we when we throw this stuff up on the interwebs when it goes up. Um, it'll be in about I think in about a I think we're like operating at about a month out, right? So each interview we do is yeah. approximately a month from release, basically. And um, yeah, five yeah. And, and and again, man, uh, really really appreciate. Uh, you you know because I know one of the one of the themes I think with with a lot of the people that we speak to is they tend to be pretty busy like they have a lot of different things that they're working yeah. on at any given point in time and so we really do appreciate you carving out time to talk with us and uh, uh do do something that maybe isn't always easy for everybody to do which is you know get get talk what in a way that's going to be public and everything I know it can be hard for for, for some and uh, so yeah, you know I hate this. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we really, I mean, thanks for letting us twist your arm into coming on. I think that um, it's a valuable conversation. You have a lot of valuable insight and perspective, so I appreciate you sharing it. Thanks for the flattering comment. Anybody listening (laughs) who plans to ask me to do this, this was just for them. (laughs) I've already told you no. (laughs) Fuck it, everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. We'll we'll definitely edit that out for sure. No, I'll leave that. No oh, way. I'm not going to tell everybody. I'm not going to leave to me telling everybody else to suck it on the show. <laughs> Maybe I will. I don't know. Hey, that, you know, I mean, obviously a joke, but you know, it's, it's, it's fine. Here, I'm going to stop the recording.